The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Well, good morning, everyone. We're, uh, we're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we're in the section that is focused on Job's three friends, which is actually the majority of the book. So uh, we're going to sort of act it out. It's nothing too sophisticated. We don't have, like, robes or anything or sandals. I asked about the robes, yeah, but we want it. Yeah. <laughs> I was in favor, for sure. But our, our hope is just that this will give you a little bit um, of an, an impression of what the dialogue might have been like. Because sometimes when you're reading these long sections of poetry, it can just be hard to, to really get the gist of it. So um, this is Eliphaz. And uh, this is Bill Dad. I'm Bill. Oh, so far, Bill Dad. And uh, I'm, I'm going to fill in for Joe here. Um, so let's get started. Um, this is a, a little narrator section at the beginning. Just to tell you that um, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bill Dad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? <clears throat> Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and in his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is weak? How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house. It does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. 
truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? If it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the bases of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If he passes through and imprisons the summon and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men, when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born of man. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. But I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewashed with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If I were, if you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure, my friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off. Desires in my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister. Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will they go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? How long will you haunt for words? 
Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with the words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O oh my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from a old since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger? They are like the straw before the wind, and how often are they like chaff that the storm carries away? You say that God stores up their iniquity for their children. Well, let him pay it out to them, that they may know it. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. If you not ask those who travel down the roads, do you not accept their testimony? The evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and the flood of water covers you. Agree with God, and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before its light that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he veils his face. They wrong the barren, childless woman, and do no good to the widow, yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security. And they are supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. If it's not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there's nothing to what I say? Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in, in his high heaven, 
Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him that has no wisdom, and plentifully declared sound knowledge. As God lives, who's taken away my rights, and the Almighty, who's made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a taste of the conversation that happens between Job, um, starting in chapter 3 and really going all the way through chapter 31. And if it feels a bit wearisome and repetitive, it's supposed to. Um, you know, these three friends, they come from all over. There's a Temanite, a Shuite, a Namathite. Um, I don't know where all those nationalities were, maybe you do. Uh, but we're supposed to see clearly that this is the best that human wisdom can gather from all over. And um, they just keep repeating similar thoughts in different ways, but the cycles of argument don't really get cleaner or more convincing. They just kind of peter out into a frustrated silence. <clears throat> so when it comes to analyzing God's justice in Job's situation, what these three friends offer falls short and it disappoints. And the main gist of what all three friends argue is, look, Job, good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. So for something this horrible to be happening to you, God must be punishing you. Just come clean and confess already and, and change your ways, and then things will go well for you again. And Job knows that this isn't right. But he can't really explain God's ways any better, and so like, he knows he's not being punished, and he's left just instead to wonder, is God being unjust? And it's not hard to understand why Job is confused. He knew the God he served cares deeply about justice. In fact, in our Bibles, we have many passages that, that speak about how God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. So it's not like the argument of these three friends is just coming out of left field. They believe that God is sovereign over everything that happens, and so they argue Job must not be blameless because, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he take the hand of evildoers. And of course, there's a lot of scripture that supports this sort of thinking. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it links very closely the people's obedience with the blessings that would come to them. And it links the people's disobedience with curses, uh, the, you know, eventually including exile from the land. And then there's many passages in the book of Proverbs that say something like this. Like in chapter 12 of Proverbs, it says, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. 
Well, if you're looking at, at that sort of thought, then it sure seems like Job is not being established. He is being moved. So does that mean he's not righteous? There's also statements from the prophets that speak of God's rewards and judgments. And even Romans chapter 1 draws clear connections between humanity's sin and a resulting downward spiral in society. So all these passages, they are true, and they do show us much about God's character. He does reward righteousness. He does punish wickedness. But does that leave us in the position to state clearly how he's doing that and when he's doing that? Now, Job's friends think that God operates according to a strict retributive principle. They think that they can just see it working instantaneously, um, clearly, completely. Bad things happen, God punishes. Good things happen, God rewards. And it does make sense that if there's a just God running things, then as good things come into our lives, um, they would be rewards and bad things would be punishments. But what about when that formula doesn't seem to work? Like when a televangelist confidently announces that the 100,000 people who died in an earthquake in Haiti were being directly punished for rejecting God. Or when a friend tells a woman that her recent miscarriage likely happened because a particular aspect of her life was outside of God's plan. Is that how the world works? Statements like those don't quite feel right to us, do they? Or what about the times when the wicked actually seem to be rewarded and to prosper? Where is the immediate justice then? And what about when you feel like you're pursuing God to the best of your ability and you just get slammed harder and harder? Like Job, you might be left puzzled and not at all comforted by others who interpret your situation according to a simple system. Well, today we'll look at Job's dialogue with the three friends to see that we need to reject formulas about a mechanistic God. Reject formulas about a mechanistic God. God's justice by which he runs the universe, it's, it's not wooden, it's not systematic. So embrace the fact that God's justice, his judgment and his rewards are not instantaneous. God isn't just a, a justice vending machine. And so what he's up to in the midst of our suffering, it's not always, it's not even usually knowable. He is a wise judge with perfect timing, and that is often mysterious, but it can be trusted. Well, three reasons why we need to reject boxed ideas about God's purposes in suffering. These sorts of formulas about how the world works, they create a destructive pride among the strong people who aren't suffering. And they create discouragement and confusion in the weak people who are suffering. And these sorts of boxed ideas eliminate worship of the heart. They make it impossible for us to worship God for himself out of sincerity. First, Neat and tidy ideas about God's purposes in suffering create destructive pride. Do you see that pride with Job's friends? Do you see that at all as we were talking up here? Pride frequently puts us in the role of offering unsolicited advice. His friends come at first and they're quite solemn and they're supportive and they're not quick to speak. But as soon as Job starts to lament, 
they feel compelled to solve a problem for him. It's all too simple from their point of view. And he tries to explain, no, guys, really, like, I don't have any hidden areas of cherished sin. I'm, I've been walking transparently with God. But they don't believe him because it doesn't fit with their system. They think that just because Job is the one suffering, and they are not, they're well, therefore, there must be something that Job needs to learn from them. Do we ever make that mistake? Clean systems of understanding suffering create pride by making us feel like, well, we must be doing something right if we're in a better situation than someone else. And so we can, we can quickly shift from being amazed at God's good gifts to us to instead feeling, well, a little bit smug because we've somehow deserved God's good gifts to us. And this attitude creeps in very, very subtly. Whenever Christians are self-congratulatory about themselves or about the church community, it shows that we actually think we've succeeded for ourselves. We think that, that the good in our lives is authored by our own actions. And pride like this, in the face of other people's suffering, it also creeps in when we're used to getting things right. We're used to understanding Scripture. We're used to making sound observations. And, um, but with the Pharisees in the New Testament... We see Job's friends are a lot like that, that um, they say lots of true stuff, lots of true stuff. Large sections of what the three friends say could just, if we took them out of context, we could treat them as wisdom literature. We could think that they are in the book of Proverbs or something. Um, for example, in chapter 5, Eliphaz says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. I can say amen to that. But he assumes that all suffering is correction. And that Job is definitely being disciplined. The problem isn't the true things that the friends say about God, that he disciplines his people for their good. As with any subtle false teaching, the problem is what they omit. They omit the possibility of innocent suffering, suffering that isn't prompted by sin, but is just part of God's unique purposes. And the reason that the three friends are so certain of themselves is tradition. Bildad says in chapter 8, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? In other words, Job... People have always known that suffering is discipline or judgment, and we are the proud curators of that tradition. So how dare you suggest that the things that we heard from people whom we respect are incomplete or wrong? It's pride. By assuming that God could have no mysterious purposes in suffering, they're, they're pridefully making God small. They're putting him in a box. A box that doesn't reflect the full contents of Scripture. When we're coming at Scripture with humility, then we'll be careful to leave mystery where it leaves mystery. Even though it would be way more convenient to just pretend like there isn't mystery and to find a system to live by. But there are no formulas to avoid suffering. There are no formulas to arrive at easy answers for senseless suffering. 
<clears throat> now, it's been said that we could ask questions about suffering either as armchair questions or as wheelchair questions. So in one, you're, you're sitting there, you know, pondering it like an academic question. In the other, you're going through it. And this is true, you know, even if we've suffered ourselves in the past and we've been in the wheelchair, so to speak, we can still be so quick to read our past experiences into the situation of others and still be armchair, not wheelchair theologians. The humble person won't treat the suffering of other people as a problem to study, but as a burden to be shared voluntarily. The three friends' pride, it really reveals itself when they get angry at Job. Maybe you saw some of that. They get angry at him because he refuses. He keeps refusing their explanations. They started out nice, but then they get quite nasty by the end. I mean, in chapter 22, Eliphaz, is, he just starts making up evil stuff that he's sure Job must have secretly done. <laughs> Do we get that way when hurting people won't agree with our diagnosis of the world around them? You know, I'm, I'm trying to help you here. How dare you disagree with me? And Bildad says that Job is treating them like they're stupid. He's like, will, will there be just a cosmic exception for you, Job? It's a universal rule. The wicked are the ones who are stamped out. So these friends are reacting strongly because... If they're not right about Job, well, then the fabric of their worlds seems to come apart. That's what, why Job says in chapter 6, For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity, and you are afraid. He sees that they're afraid because if he is blameless, then they are just as vulnerable as he is. Then their attempts... At righteousness that they thought were protecting them actually may not be. And they just can't handle the inconsistency and the unpredictability of life in such a world. It, it would drive them mad. So they just take it out more and more on Job. No, Job, there must be a logical reason to your suffering. There must be an easy fix that you could do. Otherwise, if not, what does that mean for us? So we must reject packaged answers about suffering because they will lead you to pride and that pride will lead you to anger and to fear. Secondly, systems to understand suffering create hopelessness and confusion, especially for those who are already weakened by pain. In multiple places, you can hear Job protesting this effect that they're having on him. He says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Miserable comforters are you all. Now, if what the friends were saying to Job was total garbage, it, it wouldn't be so discouraging to him. He could just blow it off. But there's actually a lot of truth to what they say about God. They're just applying it to this situation in an overly specific way. As if they had knowledge that they just don't have. Multiple times, Job says, yes, I too know these things, but and still they won't hear him out. Their categories are fixed in stone, and they care more about being right than about understanding him. Instead of listening well, they just take offense at Job's kind of over-the-top complaints against God. 
and they write him off and they withdraw their support instead of seeing that this is a man who deeply loves God and he's struggling hard to engage with God, as clumsy as that process might be for him. One of the implications of all this, if you're a friend of someone who is suffering, be patient with people who talk too much during their suffering. Job tells his friends, My calamity is heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? When our friends are despairing, it's a time to listen and not to try to make sure that their thoughts about God are all buttoned up. Remember that at the end of the book of Job, his friends are rebuked far more harshly than he is. Um, let's read those verses. Chapter 42, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. <clears throat> God is patient with Job. But God is patently unimpressed with Job's friends and their distortion of his character towards sufferers. Sure, they grasp that God loves righteousness and God hates wickedness. But they don't speak at all about God's mercy toward the weak and hurting, which we see all over Scripture. They also don't speak of his covenant love. When we focus only on one of God's qualities, whether it be, in this case, justice that the three friends are focusing on, or even if we focus exclusively on God's love, or exclusively on God's power, or exclusively on God's grace. Whenever you flatten God to be only one thing, you will hurt the people to whom you're trying to minister. So these three friends, they focus on the doctrine of total depravity. They kind of use it as a weapon to just bludgeon Job. And Bildad, I don't know if you heard it, Bildad insinuates that Job's kids died because of their sin. And then Zophar tells Job that he's actually suffering less than his guilt deserves. They're so fixated on this solution that they don't hear him agree that he's a sinner just like everyone else. And Job even prays in chapter 13, make me know my transgression and sin. I mentioned in one of the previous weeks that it's always a good idea to assess your life when you're suffering and to repent of anything you suspect might displease God. But Job has done that. His friends still think they need to help him in somehow hunting down his sin. But strangely, there doesn't seem to be the same microscope at work in assessing their own hearts. Now maybe we don't shove the problem of sin in the faces of suffering people like these friends do. Uh, I hope we don't. But are there other ways that we explain suffering that could also be discouraging? Maybe we say... God helps those who help themselves. 
Well, that's a, a rather mechanistic view of suffering with not much room for mercy. Or what about, you've got this. There's victory in Jesus. God won't give you more than you can handle. Oh, really, can we be that triumphant in our tone? Now, the Bible does say that God provides a way out of temptation. But nowhere does it say that we won't get more pain than we can handle. I'm pretty sure that Job got more than he could handle. And he breezed through his laments too quickly. If we don't see that he is emotionally raw and broken. Or sometimes we simplify suffering by assuring people, it's okay, God is using this hardship to make you grow. That may be true. But are you so confident of that connection that you think that'll make someone feel better that their loved one just died? Or that they have no income for their family? Or that their kid went off the rails? Or their hopes for the future are dashed? Be very careful not to flatten our God or put his ways in a box or else he'll discourage and not help your suffering brothers and sisters. Thirdly, when we attempt to understand suffering with a tidy system, it makes true communion with God impossible. It eliminates worship of the heart. There's always a temptation to remove personhood from God and, and sort of see him as this impersonal system or set of equations. <clears throat> because when you're suffering, you know that God could have stopped it. And so it can be emotionally easier to just think that he's not personally involved. And so the thought starts to take root that, well, blessing and suffering are just kind of automatic consequences of our actions. And we see thoughts like this even in today's non-Christian world. You know, a general belief in karma or the equivalent. Like, you shouldn't do bad stuff because the universe might make it come back to hurt you. Or if something good comes into your life, you should pay it forward. And these sorts of thoughts comfort even unbelievers, um, help them to, to think that there's a grid that they can live by without having to do business with a personal God. And Job's three friends, they're in a very similar place to that. They view God as distant. They view, they view God as seeing mankind basically as repulsive to him. Do you see that? Bildad says... Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm. Is that, is that how God talks about humanity in the rest of Scripture? Like a worm and a maggot that he just doesn't even want to do business with? And because in their eyes God is, is distant and unknowable, then you have to deal with him kind of like a temperamental dictator. Their system reinforces a type of worship that looks for quick rewards for obedience, get the good stuff, and stay out of God's way. And this sort of mercenary attitude, it's exactly what Satan was suggesting um, that, that would be true of Job, or, or any human for that matter. And he, he thought that God and Job are colluding in this game of bribery and payoffs. Strangely, it's not Job that, that does that, but his friends. They would be quite happy with such an arrangement. Let's just bow to a bully God in order to get nice treatment from him. It reduces love for God to a sort of crude transaction. <clears throat> and one of the things that we learn from Job is that inexplicable suffering, what, one positive of it is it actually makes true love for God possible. 
Because only in the circumstance where it seems like you're getting nothing from God, only then can it be seen that you love God as God, that you trust Him when no answers are available. The friends wanted a system and quick reassurances, but Job wanted God. And for that reason, he's vindicated in the end. Job isn't rebuked, but the three friends are. They need a big sacrifice to atone for their sin. So we see that God humbles those who are morally and intellectually well-ordered, but whose hearts are far from Him. And God honors those who long for Him, even if they speak brashly and are messy about it. Job's role in restoring his friends is a great piece of application for any who have suffered from simple answers or the ignorant judgments of miserable comforters. Because there will be a strong temptation to just cut them off and walk away. And you may need some distance from bad friends when you're in the midst of all the pain. It's certainly not helping you to engage with them. But don't totally slam the door on that relationship because God can use the big picture of your suffering to help soften and grow them in the long run too. So consider God's mercy on these three friends. Consider Job's mediation for them. And then go and pray for your bad friends. People who haven't been helpful to you when you most needed them. Pray for their hearts even when they think that you're the one with the problem. And that will also help protect you from growing bitter. Righteous Job who inexplicably had his blessing interrupted. He mediates for his abusive friends and he restores those relationships through essentially serving as their priest. And in doing that, he reflects someone else who would also have his blessings seemingly senselessly interrupted. 2,000 years ago, another blameless servant of God suffered with three inadequate friends in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if there's anyone for whom God's justice was delayed, who didn't seem to receive the reward of the righteous, but was treated like an evildoer, it was Jesus. Jesus is the proof to us that suffering is not always linked to one's own sin. Eliphaz had said, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? How about Jesus? And as you follow Jesus, as you follow his path, there may be times when you, like Job, are called to endure a season that just doesn't make sense. A degree of suffering that seems totally uncalled for, and you have no idea why God is asking it of you. And the suffering itself may even be made worse by false conclusions and mean-spirited judgments of people who you thought were your friends. Jesus himself had to wait for the vindication of the Father. And he did that with patience and with meekness. And as a result, the Father exalted him and made him judge over all. So this is your judge, Jesus. He's not an impersonal force of karma. He's not a God in a box whose timing is predictable and whose justice can just be thrown around as a guarantee that our lives will be safe and happy. Whatever we do face, our judge has passed through the worst. He is sympathetic and merciful, and you can talk to him directly. 
You can plead and wrestle with him like Job did. You can cling to him, not to a flat idea of justice, but cling to a living and compassionate redeemer until the day when those who are counted as blameless in Jesus will shine like the stars regardless of what depth of darkness you've had to pass through along the way. Lord, we pray that you would save us from packaged versions of you. God, protect us from ideas that flatten you and your purposes in our suffering. Teach us to be true friends. We don't want to be prideful problem solvers or discouraging judges. Lord, help us in times of suffering to seek you, to seek you yourself, to encourage other sufferers to be seeking you, not impersonal and tidy solutions. And as we trust you in the midst of mysterious pain, God, let us strangely discover that you're with us and that we could follow you through any battle. We pray this in Jesus' name.